0: Thank you, Glenn, for sharing your story, how you came to discover the grace of the gospel. If you have your Bibles with you, that would be excellent, since I don't have my PowerPoint with me. So you will have to follow along, or else take my word for it. This is a message from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It is a long passage. I'm not going to read it all. So you want to keep your finger there in Acts chapter 5. The title of the message is Support from Surprising Sources. Uh, Now, I, I think it's fair to say, and you probably would agree with me, that language can be fluid. So sometimes if you are an adult parent of teenagers, you might wonder why you don't have a pocket translator with you sometimes Because they're using words that you believe are English, um, but you don't really understand what they are. In fact, I I was fascinated to notice that the Oxford Dictionary had to add almost a hundred new words to the dictionary in 2016. They're words that just kind of bubble up from the street, that people somehow start using, and then it becomes common speech. Words like Trumpism. I'm not going to say what that means, but it's now a word. And Brexit, that's a word, right? And, and bruncheon, which is like luncheon, only earlier, right? So these, these are the kinds of words. I like finger pointers. Finger pointers is when you do something, obviously, to get scrutiny that you don't want. Like forgetting your PowerPoint, that's a real finger pointer, right? Hackability, that's a word, Uh, Here's a word that used to be in common use, but but it's developed a a new meaning. And frankly, it's a a little bit irritating to me. The word is disrespect. Now, disrespect is a noun, right? It means contempt or, or scorn. But now that noun has become a verb. Don't disrespect me, man. Which is not a real word, but now it is. In fact, I just checked the news last week just to see what was in the news. And this was one headline. Indian cricketer warned, don't disrespect Australia. Australia's sensitive that way. They don't like to be disrespected. And there is an American football player, a famous American football player, American football, on trial right now this week for murdering two men. And he is alleged to have shouted, disrespect this, as he emptied his clip into them. And, and of course, closer to home, we have two nations, right, that are holding its citizens hostage because nobody's going to disrespect us. So, so here's the question I would like us to consider as we look at the radical transformation the gospel brings into every human heart. What are the things in your life that cause you to rejoice? What are the things that would cause you to feel honored, respect? And what would it take for you to look back at the end of this week and say, wow, that was an awesome week for me? As we look at this, we're going to find out that not only did the gospel empower these new believers to boldly declare good news, but last week, it empowered them to shed the myth of ownership and embrace stewardship. But also this week, we are going to discover that the gospel allowed these first believers to dramatically shift definitions expectations of what is honor and what is respect and what brings joy to the human heart. And and first, I want us to look at verses 12 through 16 and this subheading. Expect to come as I am, but don't expect to remain that way. Here's what we read in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders... Were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, it's important to note that there's a shift, right? There's this slow progression, this slow incremental change that's occurring at this moment. In fact, verse 11, which we barely mentioned last Sunday, is the first time that the word church is used in association with this group of new believers. It's the very first time. And don't think of it as a religious term because in the secular world, that word simply means assembly, the body, the group. And the first time that is used in the, in the book of Acts is in verse 11. The group met. Right? And, and now in verse 12, we see a subtle shift. They are still considering themselves Jewish people. They are still worshiping in the temple, but they've shifted away from inside the temple to Solomon's porch, which is right outside the eastern wall of the temple. Still within the authority of the temple, there was a roof and a walkway and stairs, and people would gather to be armchair philosophers and religious theologians. They would just share thoughts together, That's where this group now had gathered. They were spilling out of the temple, and now they were right at the edge of the temple at Solomon's porch. That's where they were, and stuff was was happening. I find it interesting that we see in verse 13, perhaps because of the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps because they saw two people drop dead. For daring to be owners and not stewards. Suddenly it says in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them. But everybody held them in high esteem. People moving in and out of the temple. People moving by on the street side. But none of the rest, the big crowd that was being added, they didn't dare join that group. Because, you know what, walking with the holy God suddenly was inconvenient. Now, some of you who have been at GBC longer than I have, you know that when we shifted here, 3.30 was inconvenient for some. But this is more than just uh, my nap time. This is slaying in the spirit. Now, understand this. When God slays you, you're dead, right? Just to, to clear up that bit of contemporary theology, they just died, and so, because of that, this fear of the fear of God's was saturating the community, and some people just uh, couldn't bear to join. Now, verses fourteen and sixteen. Now, this this is going to make some of us a bit nervous. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, not to the church. They were added to the Lord, to His body. Church is not a building; it's biology multitudes of both men and women. So as they were losing some, they were picking up some. Now here we go. So that even they carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Now... Acts is biblical narrative. I need you to hear me say this. We should be extremely cautious about developing fundamental theology based upon biblical narrative. Biblical narrative has a goal not to provide a theological foundation, but to tell the story of what happened. And what is happening in Acts chapter 5 is people are coming to Christ with an imperfect faith. They're coming to Christ and interpreting what they're experiencing within the framework of their pagan mindset. In other words, it was believed that the sole force of a man held was held in his shadow. Now, now in case you're wondering... This tradition was carried all the way to Vancouver, British Columbia in 1957 when I was born there. Because I remember with my brother going to school with the southern sun on our back and it was casting our shadow. My brother constantly running ahead, jumping on my shadow and said, I killed you, you're dead. Because of this concept that a a mythical life force was held in the shadow. That was it. That's why some people walking some parts of the day look at how long my shadow is. Powerful man. Oh, yeah, the sun is setting. But, you know, we don't do science, we just interpret our shadow within the framework of Western mythology. This is important. Because some of you are thinking, I'm not sure if I can follow Jesus. I'm not sure if I can be baptized because I don't have the whole thing down yet. It should be good news that we can come to Christ with an imperfect faith. And he receives us that way. This is the difference between religion and faith in Jesus Christ. Because religion finds me knee deep in a mess And then reminds me every single day, you are knee deep in a mess. And every once in a while, it can extract some good behavior from me, but only because the guilty are easy to manipulate. Christ finds me knee deep in a mess, but he doesn't leave me there. Does it bother you that as a seven-year-old boy, I came to Christ through an imperfect faith? I was seven. I didn't know all the deep mysteries of the gospel, but I heard my pastor say, Boys and girls, listen to this. God is good. The devil is bad. Don't be bad. That was a binary choice for children. Oh, you mean I could be the devil or good? Yes, I want to I be good. That's how I came. Now, a lot of great, wise theologians would say, no, that's the wrong way to come to Jesus, but I'm telling you, it was my first step into his embrace. It was imperfect. Now, now listen to me. Any preacher who says, the power of God exists in my shadow, just draw near and you'll fall down. That man is a heretic. But we see it in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, later on in chapter 19, if I can just get Paul's handkerchief, any evangelist who says, mail in $50 and I will send you my healing handkerchief, that guy's a huckster. But, but, but listen, now let, let me hit us closer to home. Here's something glorious about the way God found me. He found me in total depravity. He found me in an absolute mess, but he does not leave me there. Two years ago, Sherry and I were in Washington, D.C., and we went to a church. You know what it is. The sermon was on total depravity. I sang about me being a worm at least 17 times. All throughout the service, every song was, I am a wretched worm of a man. That's how I used to be. that's how I used to be. But this is why ours is a singing faith. That is the glory of his grace. He found me that way, but he doesn't leave me that way. And if we're still singing every single day, oh, I'm such a wretched worm. That's what I am. We are not growing in our faith because the joy is I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's the joy that bubbled up in the psalmist's voice when, when he said, He drew me, this is Psalm 40, He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new what? Song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. We sing because we used to be imperfect and broken, and now we have been accepted. Borrowed righteousness, continually growing in our trust in him. I want to say, friends, I believe we need to encourage people to come as they are, because that is the very song they were singing when I took my pastor's big hand and said to him, don't want to be devil, want to be good. He accepted me as I was but he continued to grow Christ in me. That's where joy comes from. But here's the second point in verses 17 to 26. Expect God, you know, first, accept me as I am, but no, don't leave me there. Secondly, expect God to move me out of my comfort. Now, now the Bible is full of inconvenient truth. And, and, And one of these is definitely the fact that I can find no instance ever in this book where God approaches a man and says, hey, no, don't get up. You're fine just the way you are. Just, just, just coming by to check on you. Every single time God meets with somebody, it creates total radical disruption in that man's life. Every single time. God meets with me and I must change. That's why reading God's word sometimes is inconvenient. Coming to church is sometimes awkward. If I do not feel awkward under the holy scrutiny of the Most High Creator, King of of all of creation, then either he is not truly who he says he is or I am much more than I think I am. Here's the awkward truth. God calls us out of comfort. He's not calling us to convenience. He's not calling us to comfort. Verse 17 says this, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and he was filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And you're thinking, yes, that is pretty much the worst discomfort ever, being in prison that just tells you how comfortable we are. And do you know on our first church in Canada, it was the plains of Saskatchewan, and in Saskatchewan in the wintertime, the, the winter weather will go to minus 40 and stay that way for a month. And, and so in the summertime, homeless Canadians will commit a crime, just wait for the police. They're planning ahead. Like, you, 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 we Singaporeans, we like master plan, right? They're planning ahead for minus 40. And, and the worst thing that could be happening to them is if they get arrested and the judge decides, hey, you don't need to go to prison for this, just don't do it again. Then they will go to 7-Eleven again, steal something bigger, and wait for the police. Why? Because when it's outside minus 40, prison is awesome. So so I just want you to know that I'm not talking about prison being the awkward part. I'm not I'm not talking about it being the uncomfortable part. Here is God calling his followers out of comfort, verse 18 through 21. But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, "Go stand in the temple and speak to the people All these words of life, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. You know, you know. I notice Christians are really, really bold when we're all together in a big group. I notice we're most not ashamed of the gospel when we're all in a building together. And in fact, let me just be honest, I never am this bold on the MRT. But, but what if God is saying to his people today, at the end of this long speech, I'm going to open the doors to that jailhouse, go out into the temple, and teach all the words of this life. That's suddenly minus 40. That's suddenly... You see, the truth of it is, missions does not require jet fuel. When we leave this place this afternoon, we are leaving this building and entering our mission field. Go out and publicly declare all the words of this life. That is suddenly going to get really uncomfortable. Now, here, here's something I find fascinating. This, this, I felt like, this passage should have been subtitled, The Day That Nobody Showed Up to Work. Because if you notice in, in verses 22 and 24, um, the high priest comes with all of his entourage, and he says, come on, get these people in here. Um, okay, they're not here, but we need to get them. And, and then they call together the council. Remember, the high priest, his work was in the temple which was where these disciples has be, had been since daybreak. He comes in with all of his entourage who also serve at the temple. That's where the Sadducees served. And they had no awareness that the disciples were not in jail, but they were at their workplace Sharing the gospel. And then they sent to the prison. And the, and the officers came. And for the first time, apparently, they thought we should look into our jail to see if they're still there and they're gone. So they weren't at work either. I don't know what special high holy day it was. And, and the captain of the temple, he wasn't at work. The chief priests were not at work. They were all dumbfounded. The Sadducees didn't go to the temple The Sanhedrin wasn't at work. And finally, in verse 25, says, hey, these men you put in prison, they're in the temple right now preaching this good news. And this is why, third point, we must always expect support from surprising sources. So here we know. I'm just going to summarize this if it's okay because it's a long passage. The Sanhedrin runs off, they drag drag them into this new court session, and and the outcome of these gospel-empowered, bold believers was they get another opportunity in front of the ruling council to share the gospel. And, And when they get in front of them, the ruling council says, we strictly forbade you to preach this news, to teach in this name, yet you have, listen, filled all of Jerusalem with this teaching. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Are we that not ashamed? That we could be charged with filling all of Singapore with this gospel? You see, a doctorate degree in theology doesn't make me feel good at this point. Because I'm comparing the dramatic change that took place in them, and I'm wondering, when is it going to come to me? When is it going to come to GBC? Where the inconvenient thing is the right thing, not the awkward thing. It's the noble thing. It's the missional thing. And, and here is the charge. And we know what you're up to. Is kind of what Glenn was saying in his story. They were afraid of perceptions. They longed for the praise of men. They said, we know what you're up to. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. you know, make it... All our fault, Mel Gibson. Make it look like we're the ones who, who killed this man. And Peter and the apostles. Remember, first it was just Peter who was preaching. Now it's Peter and the apostles. They're all responding. They said, the God of our fathers raised up this man that you put down. We must... Obey Him rather than this counsel. The same thing Peter had said earlier. Now, they were all saying this. We must obey Him. And they specifically identify Him, not only as our Savior, but as our leader. You see, if you want to get in trouble with Rome, say, Jesus is our Lord. Because according to Rome, only Caesar was Lord. But they don't say, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. They say, Jesus is our Archon, which means leader, that's who the Sanhedrin was. They were the archon, the leaders of the people. The apostles are now saying, "You're not that." For us. it's Jesus. We get our instructions from Him. In verses thirty-three and thirty-four, when they heard this, they were enraged and came to the only godly conclusion: We've got to kill these guys. This is what religion does. The religious have always hated the righteous. How is it that in the act of offering religious devotion to God, Cain gets this amazing thought, I think I'm going to kill my brother. That's the way it has always been. Religion can be identified by that. Their only conclusion is, we need to kill these guys. But they couldn't do it in public because there was so much talk about these men. And right in the middle of this, support comes from an odd source, from a Pharisee. His name was Gamaliel. He's not just mentioned in the Bible. He's mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. Now, the Talmud is different from the Torah, The Torah, according to Jewish thought, is the law of God passed down by the hand of God to the hand of Moses. The Talmud was the oral law. I would have so much more authority, by the way, if we had oral law in Baptist committees. But we don't have that. In the oral law, Gamaliel is listed. He is the first identified not as a rabbi, teacher, but as a rabban, which means the president of all Pharisaical ruling councils. He was an influential man, and he's also mentioned in the Talmud as having one particularly impudent student. And we'll learn his name a little later on. He was Gamaliel, the teacher of the teachers, And he stood up and gave a lesson to his students. Let me give you a brief lesson on messianic movements. And he started in verse 36. Remember, Theodos, he rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, followed him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. This is what happens in our history messianic movements come to nothing. In fact, Gamaliel wasn't the only one who wrote on Theodos. There was a secular Jewish historian who became a Roman citizen, and up until his old age, he kind of cloaked himself in Romanness. He cut his hair like a Roman. His name was Flavius Josephus. He mentioned Theodos led a group down to the Jordan River, promising to separate the waters. But instead, he was ambushed by some soldiers, and they separated Theodos from his head and carried it into Jerusalem. And all of his followers were dispersed, and the movement came to nothing. That is historical support for the biblical record. And then in verse 37, Gamaliel goes on, and after him Judas the Galilean came. He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Josephus mentions him as well. He was the first leader of the fourth category of Pharisees that we know as zealots. They followed the Pharisaical law in all matters except for one thing. God wants us to have liberty. They took up arms and fought against the Roman Occupiers. Those were the zealots. Judas was the Messiah of the zealots. They ended up in nothing. Josephus writes, Judas was the founder of the sect of the Pharisees, known as the zealots. Josephus blamed Judas for all manner of problems that came to Palestine, including famines and, at the end of the day, the destruction of Jerusalem. All Judas' fault. This is the history of the Messiahs. And because of that, his advice, stay away from these guys. We don't have good history with Messiahs. It all comes to nothing. And so, verse 38 through 40, they agreed. Enhanced agreement. They agreed to stand back, release them, but not before a good beating. I'm going to say this. Should it surprise us that a sovereign God is able to send support from strange sources, from sources we wouldn't expect? This is why Isaiah 14, 24, he says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, as I have purposed, So shall it stand. Proverbs 21, 30 and 31 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And that is why Joseph could say to his brothers, What you planned, you meant for evil toward me, but God meant it for good. Even imprisonment, even beatings, even inconvenience. God means it for good. For the good of what? For the good of his glory. God can use a pagan Zoroastrian king named Cyrus to set his people free. God can use a tiny, single American woman named Laura Clement. Some of you know that name. Laura Clement was sent to Jiangmen, China, 1915. She served there until the end of 1949. And then at the age of 60, she came to Singapore. Some of you remember Laura Clement. In fact, I I don't see Pat Chan here, but I enjoyed hearing Pat Chan talk about Little Laura Clement visiting door to door in her neighborhood and her mother hiding all the mahjong tiles, hiding in the toilet because how to say no to that lady? And yet God used her to gather a group which we now call GBC. God used a missionary who desired to serve in Indonesia. You know, Dr. P, I know what it's like to have your heart set on a calling and yet they couldn't get a visa here. Because the nation of Indonesia wanted to control the kind of matsales would come and spread religion. We don't want that thing. And they came here. And the work that was founded in 1950, God used that couple, Dr. and Mrs. P, to shore up and strengthen. Southern Baptist sent Miss Clement to China. You know who sent her to Singapore? Bao Zedong. Because Southern Baptists were sending their resources to China. They were focused on China. They had so many missionaries and and seminaries and churches in China. And then in 1949, oh, disaster. The communists have won. And all the missionaries suddenly had to leave or die. It's no accident that a lot of Baptist churches in Southeast Asia are celebrating soon or soon before their 60th anniversary, because that aligns with 1950. God can use a dictator for his glory. Do you think he wants to use us? Do you think he is able to use me, who came to him with imperfect faith? Do you think he's able to use you? Yes, he can. And and notice, it requires something of us, though. And this is the very last thing. Oh, we still have four minutes. Verses 41 through 42. Expect the object of honor to shift from Ian to him. This is really important. We cannot have unity. If there are people among us who are seeking personal vindication. And let me say in the gentlest way I know how, if you've been damaged by somebody, someone has hurt you, I want to say this to you gently God is not interested in your personal vindication, He's interested in vindicating. The glory of his name. The name that has been made an abomination among the nations, according to Ezekiel 37. I am going to act on behalf of my name. It's not because of you, O Israel. It's not because of you, O failed missionaries. It's not because of you, O churches, that seek glory for your branding or for your pastoral staff. Here is the amazing thing that the gospel did. It shifted this allegiance of glory from those who were men to the God who created all things. Then they left the presence of the council after that beating. Doing what? Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I have suffered dishonor in my life. But to be honest with you, when I suffer dishonor, it's because I've been an idiot. Peter would encourage you, you know, suffer for doing what is right. These these apostles stood in the winter of that temple, preached boldly the good news of Jesus Christ, and were beaten for it. And in, as a result of that, they celebrated that they would be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And consequently, every day, in the temple, and now another shift, and from house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Jesus. Josephus also had something to write about this Messiah. In his expansive work called the Antiquities, he wrote this, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds, he won over many Greeks and many Jews. And when, upon the accusation of the principled men among us, Pilate condemned him to a cross, those who first came to love him did not cease. And then, this final notation And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day, not disappear. Other messiahs died. Their people disappeared. But this one died, rose again, and his people could not stop talking about what they had seen and heard. What about you? What have you seen and heard? What is your heart focused on? That is what you and I will talk about. And my prayer for us is, this is Lent, the Lenten season. I want to give up my glory. For the sake of one who gave up the comfort of heaven, who gladly took on the punishment I should have rightly and justly bore, I want to give up my glory. Just like Glenn, I, I want to give up my desire for approval. Approval for the sake of his glory. Because if we will see that kind of experience in GBC, we will allow ourselves to diminish and say, more Christ, always Christ, everything him, in him, through him, he is everything. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. I wonder if this afternoon in this, holy moment I wonder if during this the second Sunday of Lent you might need to say God I I am so exhausted constantly seeking approval and if your spirit comes not for my personal approval but for yours And fill me afresh. Empower me for this assignment. That they leave this place. And saturate my mission field with the news of this life. Full and abundant. And if you're here and you're 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 struggling with this whole faith issue because you know everything in your world is this faith is just counterintuitive you know that you get ahead by everything your hands accomplishes you're full on saturated by a passion for meritocracy i'm asking you to give up your meritocracy for the sake of a king who is eternal for the sake of his glory This Lenten season, would you say, I give it up. My gift to the cross is my personal ambition, my personal need for approval. I give that up for the sake glory of Christ. Father God, I pray that you would encourage us By the moving of your spirit, fill us for the purpose of this assignment. Embolden our hearts to share good news, not by rote memory, but just out of the natural flow of the joy of realizing we were lost, but you found us. We were blind to spiritual things, but you opened our eyes. We were far from home, and you have given us a home in your embrace. Father, let us be this week good stewards of this gospel. Let it bubble up in us and flow all over our friends and neighbors and our family so that you might be honored, so your name might be vindicated in this city, in this nation, and around your world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our time together, I want to invite you to stand with our worship team as we sing this song of response.